I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you gotta decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. This week's episode comes once again from the live MK3D shows that I do every month at the BFI South Bank in London. The most recent show was a typically packed affair, so we've split it across two episodes of Kermode on Film. On next week's podcast, we'll hear from the co-directors of The Real Charlie Chaplin, James Spinney and Peter Middleton, and from Clio Barnard, who talks about her BAFTA-nominated feature, Ali and Ava. And there are more BAFTA nominations on this week's podcast as I speak to Cherish Taker about The Black Cop, which is nominated for Best British Short, and Jonas Poor Rasmussen, the Danish filmmaker behind Flea, which has two BAFTA and three Oscar nominations. So sit back, relax, and take a front row seat for MK3D, live from the BFI South Bank. I walked out of the dressing room carrying my bag. They said, do you want us to put that somewhere? I said, no, it's like an extension of my arm. And I just, it just, I don't know, I've just literally walked on stage with my bag. And I'm trying to make it seem like it was a completely casual thing, but it's like, yeah, anyway. Hello, everybody. How are we all? (laughs) Lovely to see you all here. Um, We have a packed show for you tonight. Uh, I've already discovered that we are able to overrun, which is which is very which is very good news. Except for our last guest, who has to be somewhere else, so it's going to work like that. So, um, thanks everyone for coming along. Uh, as usual, we're going to start with the Q and A, which we've done through Twitter. The way we're doing this at the moment is, if you have a question, you know, tweet us in advance because it stops the, you know, calling out in the auditorium, which we're still uh, being sort of as safe as possible. So, this came in from. Nikki Baker. Nikki, you here? Is that a yes or a no? I'll take that as a no. Okay, so Nikki Baker said, the Oscar nominations are announced tomorrow. Which films do you think... Now, this is, this is very specific. Which films should be nominated <laughs> but won't be nominated? Now, you know, for ages and ages, we did the Kermode Awards, um, which was the whole thing was that you could only get a Kermode Award if you hadn't been Oscar nominated. And if you saw The Observer yesterday, we did one of those kind of critic things in which you choose the movies that you think should be nominated. So the things I think should, but won't, because the nominations, is it tomorrow? Tomorrow. Huzzah. Um, So, because I always I have such faith in awards. Um, Petite Maman, obviously, should, you know, should be nominated Best Film, but won't be. Uh, the Green Knight, which I love. Did you all see The Green Knight? Wasn't it fabulous? It was just, did you see it in the cinema? 
Because that was the whole thing that for ages we weren't going to be able to see it in the cinema. And then we were able to see it. That was, I loved that. Uh, Titan, which I think is just, just fantastic and didn't even make it to the nominations for Best Foreign Language Film, which is a shame um, because I thought it was, you know, a wonderful piece of work. Obviously, Julia DeCorno came on the show when she made Raw back in 2016, 2017. So we were way ahead of the game. I think she owes all her success to us. And Censor. Censor, which is the Prano Bailey Bond film, which is uh, eligible for Oscars, but isn't going to get noticed by anybody. The other one I loved is Summer of Soul, but that probably will get nominated for Best Documentary Feature, and deservedly so, because I think that's a, it's a fantastic piece. We're not doing the Kermode Awards this year, as far as I know, because we don't have a... We don't have a television platform for them at the moment, but obviously the BBC could solve that. It was just like literally, and it, it's cheap, right? Because we do it really cheaply. Yeah, you can email them. You can. Uh, this came in from Gavin Hunt. You compared Moonfall. <laughs> right, how many of you did? How many of you went to see Moonfall over the weekend? A goodly amount. Did you really enjoy it? It's. It's brilliantly crap, isn't it? <laughs> he said, you compared Moonfall with Gravity, The Martian, Event Horizon, Melancholia, and Sharknado. <laughs> Are there any other planet-crashing disaster movies, and how would you rank your top five? I mean, here's the thing. Uh, to be honest with you, the only, I mean, you know, Melancholia is the planet-crashing disaster. That's the film which begins with the Earth getting destroyed by another planet hitting it, and then it goes back because it's, you know, the Lars von Trier film. And then there's Armageddon, which is the one in which there's the big meteor, or a meteor or a comet, and it's coming towards Earth, and they have to send Bruce Willis into space because he knows how to dig some holes. And halfway through, I, I always get this wrong as to who said this, but I think it's Ben Affleck that the whole thing is they're diggers, they're the world's best diggers, and they have to train to be astronauts so they can fly up to the thing. And then halfway through, Ben Affleck said to Michael Bay, wouldn't it just be easier to teach astronauts to drill holes? He went, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> and then Deep Impact, which came out around about the same time, which was basically the same film, which is you know stuff falling out of the sky and is gonna destroy the Earth. The thing with Moonfall is this. I, there was a, this was a story in The Independent. Um, have we got that independent headline? There was a story that The Independent ran, which was, uh, Mark Kermode's fans are desperate to see Moonfall after critics' fun rant about stupidest movie ever. I just want to say two things. It wasn't a rant. I really loved Moonfall. I think it's terrible. I think it's genuinely the stupidest film I have ever seen. But I had so much fun. And, and if it, it, it is this thing that, you know, we're up in space and the moon isn't the moon. It's a megastructure and the, there's the, the conspiracy theorists with irritable bowel syndrome. I don't even know why they put that plot detail in there. And, and then they're flying around in all this stuff. And then Michael, uh, not Michael, uh, Roland Emmerich decides that they need another film going on on Earth. So there's a car chase on Earth in the snow. Well, all this stuff is happening in space, and my favorite line in it is that Michael Pena is leaning out the window, and they, he goes, bang, 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 and he goes, bang, 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 and they go, bang, 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 and all the car windows shoot out, and he turns to the driver, he says, they're shooting at us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, if you get a chance, just, you know, it is kind of genius. Okay, this came from uh, Karen Gaydon. It's Valentine's Day next week. So love is in the air. My question for you is, what is your favorite rom-com movie? My favorite rom-com is Splash. 
And Nick and I, when we did the very first Secrets of Cinema, which was now four or five years ago, something like that, yeah. Was it more than that? God, we're getting old. Um, and we did, the first one was on rom-coms. And I, we were talking about The Shape of Water, which I said is basically Splash meets the creature from the Black Lagoon. I love Splash. I can pretty much recite the whole of Splash from beginning to end because I think it's one of the just one of the greatest rom-coms. The thing I was really surprised by is when it first came out here, it had a U certificate, and it's really not a U certificate film at all. But I think I just think it's I think it's wonderful. I think it's the first film I ever saw Tom Hanks in. He'd made Bachelor Party beforehand, but that came out afterwards. And uh, I asked him once if he wanted to apologise for Bachelor Party, and he, he declined. <laughs> he declined. So this last question, this is from Skinny E Media. Kermode, what are your thoughts on Flea? I think you'll absolutely love it since you liked Waltz with Bashir. Now, this is very interesting that this came in. Let me show you the trailer for Flea. How many of you have seen Flea already? A few, okay. So here's the trailer for Flea. So this will be some joker I know. Og prøver at trække vejret sådan dybt ind. Hvad betyder ordet hjem for dig? Hjem er noget, som er trygt. Kabul, les attaques des Mujahideen var repris. Well, I am delighted to tell you that we have the director of Flea as our first guest. Please welcome to the stage Jonas Paul Rasmussen. Jonas, welcome to the show. It's such a pleasure to have you on. Uh, Riz Ahmed was on uh, a few months ago and he was talking about Flea and how, you know, how proud he was of being involved in it. Uh, the story which I didn't know anything about the story before watching the film, is really remarkable. For people who haven't seen it, and we've, obviously we've seen the trailer, how did the story come to you, and how did it arrive that you thought, what we'll do is we'll do this as an animated documentary? Well, I, I guess the story kind of came to me when I was 15. Um, I grew up in this very small Danish village, and, and one day Amin arrived, uh, all by himself, from Afghanistan. Um, He's in foster care with a family just around the corner from where I lived and, and learned Danish really fast. And we would start meeting up at the bus stop every morning going to high school. And we became very good friends. And I was, of course, already back then curious about how and why he came. Um, but he didn't want to talk about it. Um, so this story was kind of this black box in our friendship that kind of grew. Uh, we've been friends for 25 years now. Um, but this thing was always there. Um, and I, of course, respected that he didn't want to talk about it, but I was also curious. Uh, so 15 years ago, I asked him if I could do a radio documentary about his story. Um, and he then said that he knew that he would have to share his story at some point, but he didn't feel quite ready yet. Uh, but when he would be ready, he would like to share it with me. Um, and then again, years passed. Uh, and eight years ago, I was invited for this workshop in Denmark called AniDocs, where they invite animators and documentary filmmakers uh, to develop ideas for animated documentaries. Yeah. Um, and they asked me if I had an idea. Uh, and I thought, maybe this is a way to tell his story. Um, and I met up with him and asked him if he wanted to share his story, and we then turned it into an animated film. 
And he was really intrigued by the fact that he could be anonymous behind the animation because, you know, yeah. what you see in the film, what you hear is this real voice telling his story for the very first time. Um, and it's not easy for him to talk about these things. So the fact that he didn't have to be in the public eye with this was really what uh, made him say that, okay, but this feels like the right way and the right time to share my story. So you were incredibly persistent. <laughs> well, I, I, I actually only asked him three times. <laughs> Over a period of many years. Yeah, yeah. And second time I, I asked him, I kind of understood that he needed and he wanted to share his story at some point. Yeah. Um, so we're just kind of saying, okay, but we'll see when you're ready and, and then we can do something about it. Uh, and then because this animation possibility came, uh, that was really what enabled him to, to start opening up. Now, obviously, uh, people have made comparisons with Waltz with Bashir, which is, I think, the highest profile film in a similar genre. Do you see any similarities and comparisons? Yes, definitely. Uh, it's, of course, an honor to be compared to that one because that's really the the crown jewel of, of animated documentary. But you know, it's, it's both animated documentaries that, that deals with trauma, uh, that deals with trauma from the past, uh, and how to kind of go back into that to figure out, okay, but what happened? And how did it, did it, it affect me? And, and how do I move on with my life? There are moments in the documentary interview in which you appear to be finding things out for the first time. Are you actually finding those out for the first time? Yes. I knew very little when we started doing these interviews. Wow. Um, so it was really a, a, an exploration as well. You know, I, I knew that he had stayed in Russia for a while, um, and I had a sense that he had some family somewhere, but uh, I thought it was just some cousins. Um, and so, so, but most of what you hear in the film is the very first time he tells me as well. Okay. I want to show a clip, which is one of the sections showing you know, the extraordinary journey that had to be made. And I have to say, um, I think one of the things a documentary does brilliantly is you can hear stories about people undergoing unbelievable hardships. What the documentary does is dramatize them in a way that gave me chills and I found you know, really, really disturbing, which is what it should be. So this is one part of a journey in which they are crossing a sea in a boat and it's, well, it speaks for itself, I think. So let's have a look. You're bailing water out. It rains and storms. So we need to keep bailing it out because the water keeps getting in. This boat doesn't even have a radio transmitter, so we can't call for help. No one knows how to swim. I think it would have been easier if I was alone. My mother was terrified. Whenever she talked about death, she always spoke about water. Drowning, dying in water. It was her worst nightmare. What's going through your head? Who to save first if the boat goes down? So now that clip is from a, that's a dubbed version of the film. The film is opening in the UK 
in both the original subtitle version and there will also be dub versions for people who, who want to see it in the dub. I saw it in the subtitle version. Um, that thing about being able to dramatize something that's very literally real and then go into this almost kind of fantastical phantasm, that's something you can only really do with animation, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, and you know, these things really came from the testimony because what you hear here is one of, one of his traumas, you know, and when he starts to dig into his traumas, you can really tell in his voice that uh, it would change. You know, he would start to talk more slow. Um, sometime he would stop, it, he would be more, more incoherent. Um, and I thought, okay, but now it's not about what things look like anymore. It's not about what really happened. It's about an, an emotion he has inside of fear or being, being angry or being afraid. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought, okay, but we need to see this in the visual style as well. So when he starts to really dig into his traumas, uh, the style of animation changes and goes to this more kind of expressive and surreal animation. And what about the fact that the dark, although it deals with some very dark subject, also has this, this real lively vibrancy to it, the use of that song, which has now become a total earworm and I cannot get it out of my head. Um, there is a real joy in that discovery of his other side and the first time he ever goes to a gay club and he's completely overwhelmed by it. Tell me something about balancing those elements. No, but I think it's really, it really comes from the fact that this story is told from the inside of our, of our friendship. Yeah. Uh, you know, we've known each other for 25 years and we do laugh a lot. Um, and I, I really, you know, when we started doing the project, uh, Amin told me that it was important for him to not be a victim, yeah. you know, because yes, he's a refugee, uh, but that's not who he is. Yeah. That's something he went through. Uh, and he also, you know, uh, had very fun moments and loving moments and falling in love and, and just being a kid and having fun. So I really wanted to have that in there as well because you know, when you're able to laugh with someone, um, that kind of cracks you open because when you laugh with some, someone, it kind of creates a connection. Um, and when there's a connection, that generates empathy. And I thought it was important to kind of show a nuanced refugee story. Did you always know you were gonna be able to use Take On Me? No. <laughs> so how did, did, did you have to plead for the right, how did it come about? No, but it, it really came from Amin's own play, playlists. You know, uh, one of the first interviews I did with him, um, he started talking about this Walkman he had as a kid. He had yeah. this pink Walkman that his sister had given him. Um, For the young members of the audience, a Walkman <laughs> was a cassette tape that you could play. <laughs> Um, and I would ask him what kind of music he listened to. Yeah. And for some, I, I think I thought he would listen to some kind of you know, local Afghan band. Uh, but to my surprise, he listened to the same Scandi pop music I listened to when I was a kid as well. And I was surprised by that. So I thought, okay, but we need to put that in the film. Um, so actually the playlist in there is, is from his own playlist. It's a, it, I mean, what's really remarkable about it is that it's transformed that song for me. Because I have to say, I was never a fan of it before. But because of the way it's used in the doc, I now actually like it. And I realize that the doc has had some kind of alchemical thing that I now like the sound of that, of that song. When did you know that the documentary was working as well as it was? When did you know that you had achieved something with it? Well, you never really know until it meets it, it, its, its audience, but I had a feeling that we were doing something special in the process of making the film. Uh, but you know, I've had that feeling before with films and then people didn't respond to it <laughs> um, the way I thought. But, but you know, really when it premiered at Sundance, yeah. And, and, and we got really good reviews and, and, and an award, and, and I could tell that people could really relate to the story uh, and connect it to it. Uh, that was really where I felt, okay, but this, this does something. And at the BAFTAs, you're nominated for both Best Documentary and Best Animated Feature? Yeah. How is that? How do you feel about that? 
Oh, it's great. <laughs> it's no, I mean, I ask you because people often go, oh, well, awards, they just, you know, but it's not, so it's good, yeah? Oh, yeah, no, but it's, 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 it's really, really amazing. I, I, yeah, like, I, I, I didn't see that coming, so it's, it's, it's amazing. Did you not expect to get nominated? Well, you know, it kind of, I, I, a year back, no, I wouldn't have expected it. Okay. Uh, of course, when the nomination, we were on the, on the long list, so I, I kind of, yeah. In three categories, so I, I was kind of hoping for at least one, and then we got two. So, yeah. Well, it's very deserved, and uh, I think that I think the the film is going to play really, really well here. I haven't spoken to anyone who's seen it who hasn't been completely enthralled by it. And I love the way it balances those different elements. Like you say, it does feel like a film that is built from a friendship outwards. And I think that's really important. So, I asked you to suggest two movies that were your guilty pleasures. And you chose two that are they're very, very different. One, I have to say, guiltier than the other. So <laughs> tell us first why these two movies, why did you choose these two movies without naming them? Okay. When I was eight, um, um, my stepfather was working in Africa in that year, and my mom and I was gonna go visit for two months. Yeah. And we brought one VHS tape with two films on it. And during those two months, I think I saw those two films 20 times each. Um, and so they, they're really on my backbone. Um, and I, to be honest, I think I was, I was a little young to see those two films, being eight. <laughs> so I think in the beginning, it was a little traumatic. And then slowly, I kind of just kind of got used to it. And now it's, it's, it's a part of my core. OK. So one of those two films is, I think, you know, a universally acclaimed classic Western which is? Once Upon a Time in the West. Yeah. Not a guilty pleasure at all. Something no. to be very proud of. Let's have a look at the, uh, one of the open, uh, shot from the open. Oh. One of the greatest opening sequences in cinema, one of the worst bits of harmonica miming I have ever seen in my life. So did you learn things from watching this over and over again? Because it is, a, it's an absolute classic. I don't know back then if I learned anything from it, but later on when I watch it again, I think, you know, I have a background in radio and sound is really important to me. And, and the sound work in this film yeah. is just amazing. The sound and music in this film is just kind of extraordinary and how it kind of builds up to the last duel and how everything kind of comes together. It's just, um, I was like, how much sound can do in film, I, I, I learned with this film. Yeah. yeah. Did, you, did you understand it as an eight-year-old? Did you understand what was going on? Uh, well, some of it I did, you know, kind of the simple things about someone wanting, like, vengeance. Um, but there's like the whole Claudia Cardinale plot that I'm not sure I was kind of following. Um, <laughs> um, but, but yeah, definitely like, like, like um, someone who lost his brother and wanting to vengeance that, I, I, I understood. 
Now, the other film that was on this tape that, you, that went with you was very different. Yeah. Um, what was it? Karate Kid. <laughs> Karate Kid fans in the audience, yes? Now, again, it's guiltier, but it's still not that guilty. Because it's, okay, so tell us, as an eight-year-old watching Karate Kid, what did it mean to you? Uh, you know, I think just being a very skinny boy who was really bad at fighting, I think I could relate. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, just to have this kind of, um, oh, I don't know, it, it really, you know, to practice something and getting better and, uh, um, and the Miyazaki figure was like a, 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 an amazing uh, father figure in the film. I, yeah, I just really could relate to Daniel San. Should we have a look at the clip? Yes. yes. Those stumps over there? Called crane technique. Does it work? If do right, you can defense. Could you teach me? Half of us learn stand, then learn fly. Yeah. Nature rule, Daniel son, not the mind. Well, where'd you learn it from? Father teach. <laughs> you must have had some father, man. Oh, yes. Hey, look, kid got a pet nip. You know any tricks, kid? <laughs> uh, excuse me, please. Boy, cold, must leave. Kindly remove a bottle. Kindly do it yourself, Mr. Moto. How did you do that? How did you do that? Don't know. Fast type. See, that joke is still funny every time. It's the way he it up. He's like, I don't know, it's the first time I've ever done it. I remember seeing Karate Kid when it came out, and then, of course, there was the remake. Have you seen the remake? Uh, the, the Cobra Kai thing? Or, uh, the... With uh, uh, Jaden Smith? No, I haven't seen that, yeah, no. You don't need to. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's just that weird thing about the Karate Kid became the film that everyone who saw it kind of secretly loved it, but it was cool not to say you loved it. But it was, I mean, I just love the idea that you had a tape with those two movies on it. Yeah, it's, it's really random. I don't know who made that tape, but I guess my mom, but yeah. <laughs> and what's your favorite film of all time? I can't answer that. Name one of your favorite films of all time. I'll tell you what, shall I? Tell you some of mine, you can tell me whether you agree. No, but, but I, I, I would agree on Petite Maman. I, just from, from recent years, I, I love that one. I oh, saw Petite Maman is fantastic, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. And I think Celine Sierma has not put a foot wrong. I mean, it's, it, it's an almost flawless, you yeah. know, almost flawless back catalogue. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show. I know you now have to go and do a QA and a uh, at Curzon because everybody wants to hear you talking about Flea. So it's yeah. a real pleasure to have you on the show. The film opens this week. Please do go and see it. As I said, it is available in both versions. Um, I think the general version will be the subtitled version. And uh, it's terrific. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. And uh, good luck with the movie. Thank you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So uh, we mentioned that the BAFTAs, uh, BAFTA nominations have just come out. This is a film that was nominated for Best British Short. Take a look at this. It's a short trailer. I had to hurt people to get here. I joined because I wanted to be white. And I saw that badge as a symbol of, I'm one of you, I'm not one of them. I ignored some of the racism. I perpetrated some of it. My mindset was, to behave and become as white as possible. There were scenarios and people and experiences that I couldn't go back and apologize to. So how do I reconcile that within myself? How do I, how do I forgive myself? So Black Cop is currently available on the Guardian website. It's also available on YouTube. As I said, it was just nominated for Best British Short. Please welcome the director, Cherish Taker. Congratulations on the nomination. Thank you. How do you feel about it? It's still so surreal. Like, it's just, yeah, I haven't fully got on my head around the whole thing. Did you genuinely not not expect it? Yeah, I mean, like, so many films get made each year that it's just hard to think that mine could be long-listed, let alone, like, nominated and shortlisted. So, yeah, I didn't expect it at all, yeah. So, for anyone in the audience who hasn't seen the film, obviously we saw a little snippet there and we'll see a clip in a moment. Just describe for us the story of the film and who your subject is. Um, so the film explores the experiences of um, a former police officer who had to grapple with race and racism throughout his journey um, and who was the victim and perpetrator of racism in his, the early career um, in the police force. Yeah. And how did this story come to you as the subject of your film? So he first came to me um, after I went to a uh, workshop for LGBTQ plus people of colour 
Um, and there were breakout sessions, and one of them was to explore um, role models, like people that we personally had in our lives that we can look to who were LGBTQ plus people of colour. Um, I personally didn't have anyone at the time, so I was paying close attention to other people um, that, that were brought up in the group. And G's name um, was mentioned, and he sounded like a really inspirational person. Um, at the time, all of the twists and turns of his stories um, wasn't public um, knowledge, but just like hearing bits about him made me want to get in touch. Um, so it wasn't about making a film initially, it was more just about personally reaching out to um, people within the community. Um, so give yeah. the audience like a little thumbnail sketch because his, his, this, the film is about his search for identity and being able to identify himself as opposed to wondering what other, how other people identify right. him. But right from the beginning, his story is one of kind of, you know, unknown identity, isn't it? Yes, exactly. So um, he's one of the kids that was raised as part of the farming um, phenomenon that ran from the early 60s to the early 90s. Um, and so... Do you want to explain what that is, the farming phenomenon? Yeah, so he, he was, um, you know, one of several hundred um, children of West African descent who were fostered by white um, families uh, in the UK. So for the first eight years of his life, um, he didn't know that he was actually, he knew that he was different and there were comments made about him, but I think the penny hadn't really dropped that he was black. Um, and so he was really grappling with his identity and all of those kind of dynamics came to play, you know, in his later life as a police officer. Uh, we're going to see a clip from the documentary in which he's talking about his experience of first going into the force, then we'll talk a little bit more about the film. So here we go. I went to the police training college. Initially on the first day, I was proud. That very quickly was knocked out of me. London's next generation of police officers. In our intake, there was about 90 odd. And in that 90 odd, four of us were from a minority background. First of all, when you went there, you were scared to talk to the other black guys. People saw you sitting together. People were looking, why are you not sitting together? So initially I avoided them. I made eye contact, but it was like, that was about it. It was those subtle microaggressions, those subtle comments. I remember one of the instructors used to come up and say, smiley, smiley, come on, smile so we can see you. There were constant reminders that I was black. I went to see one of the instructors. I literally poured my heart out and his response to me was, you know what your problem is, son? You have a chip on your shoulder. And it was just like, wow. One of the most remarkable things about the story is, as I said, I mean, it is, it is very much about identity, and he actually talks about, you know, learning to define his own identity. But there is an, a, a horrific uh, an anecdote, but he tells the story about his fellow officers painting his face white right. and saying, you know, to make him fit in. And he said the worst thing about it is that he sort of kind of allowed it to happen, but was, were you shocked by his story? I was totally shocked by his story and his honesty, like just the, the stuff that he speaks about is just, yeah, it's, it's breathtaking and looking at the picture itself, like every single time, I just feel it's just such a uncomfortable feeling whenever <laughs> I look at that picture. Um, yeah, so his story is definitely shocking and affecting and, um, something I think that loads of people can relate to regardless of identity like I think like 
it doesn't really matter what your, the colour of your skin is or your sexuality or any of the, the rest of it, there will be something that you've been told is not good enough. Um, and I think that's a part of uh, just the human experience that we all have to grapple with. But I think he's been on a tremendous journey to um, reclaim all parts of his identity and speaks of such candor that um, yeah, is shocking in and of itself, like how he speaks about it. How did you develop the trust for him to speak so openly to you? Because you say he's very candid, but you must have... That kind of just arrived. Yeah. I mean, you must have encouraged that. Yeah, I mean, again, like I reached out to him initially just more on a personal level. So I think like we were able to build a friendship from that space of just like connecting as black queer people, um, having to navigate obviously um, the society that we have to navigate. So we kind of like generated a friendship from that space and were able to both share really personal and vulnerable things. Um, and in that, he kind of was really keen on making a film, like he was keen on sharing his experience so it can help other people. Um, so yeah, the film is definitely an extension of our friendship, but in the lead up to making the film, we had loads of conversations about, you know, what isn't and isn't um, off bounds, just in terms of, yeah, there's a lot more to his story that, uh, you know, it isn't out there at the moment, but what he did share is um, incredible. And what about, you know, the, the archive and the dramatizations and everything? How about constructing everything that isn't the central interview? How complicated was that? Yeah, it was really challenging because, you know, his story intersects with loads of really important um, parts of recent British history, yeah. and yet it's told through such a really personal um, lens. And so I really kind of wanted to have that dynamic of like the concreteness of archive, and this is how these things were reported at the time, um, which in and of itself was quite interesting, just looking at how some of these um, things were documented. Um, but then also just the really personal experiences that he had, um, and some of them, well, a lot of them are really visual, and I didn't feel, like, feel that um, archive could tell that story in and of itself. Um, and I kind of uh, worked really closely with the director of photography, um, Damien Paul Daniel, to speak about how we can make this feel visceral for an audience, um, so it's not like a passive experience, and just really trying to echo um, uh, and drive home the message that this is everyone's story, ultimately. Um, so the drama really came in in, uh, in a really uh, important way to bring his story to life. And how important is it that short films get seen? Where do you like, for example, this is available on the Guardian website, which is great, and on YouTube. But for a long time, there's been this issue about short films are harder to distribute than feature films because right. it's like, where do they fit? So tell me something about the, the, the world of short film at the moment. Um, I can't really speak to the world of short film. I can speak to my experience. And I feel like there's a lot more um, opportunities with short film um, to tell stories that ordinarily wouldn't be told. Like originally we had you know, discussed this being more of a feature, a longer form project, but um, yeah, it was challenging in terms of getting that off the ground. And I was really fortunate to get the funding from like The Guardian and BFI's Doc Society to make it happen. Yeah. Um, so I, I think like there's a lot more opportunity with short film and digital distribution and reaching audiences that, um, you know, typically aren't considered in, in many ways when it comes to broadcast TV. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm really grateful to have kind of like made this and have it out there in the world online. And how, outside of the nominations, how has the response been? Have people got in touch with you and talked to you about yeah. their responses? It's been super like interesting and like heartwarming to hear people's responses just because, you know, there's, there's people that can directly relate to the themes that are being explored um, from the race perspective or sexuality, but there's people outside of that just that, and, and it really kind of touches what the message was, just that this is everyone's story. So people are just like, I'm not black and I'm not gay, but 
I can relate to it on this level because of these experiences that I've had. Um, and of course, some of the things that are explored here are quite controversial as well. So it's been interesting to hear just different um, parts of the conversation as well. Yeah. And how has, I mean, the nominations are great and everything. How, where is your status at the moment? You're very much on the up. Have you been offered a Star Wars yet? No, I haven't been offered a Star Wars. It will happen, it's just it's a kind of thing. So, you know, where, where are you in terms of your career? Um, that's kind of hard to answer, but I've, there's, there's still loads of stories that I want to tell. Um, I'm just documentary stories or documentary stories. Yeah, that's where my passion is. But um, I have enjoyed playing with um, dramatic recon as well and seeing yeah. how it can be used to really kind of bring stories to life. And I'm really interested in the archive. Like I think making this project as well and just seeing the types of stories that were documented at the time and how they were documented. Um, I really kind of wanted to give a nod to that in the film as well. Um, yeah, so I definitely want to keep uh, exploring this space. So what's your passion project? What's the thing that you really want to make? Oh, I can't. <laughs> it's so cliche. But give me, no, it's fine, yeah, give me a hint. <laughs> Who am I going to tell? <laughs> Not that anyone's listening or anything. <laughs> Go on, just give me a vague ballpark area. Um, I think it goes into just areas of interest for me, just in terms of identity um, and reclaiming parts of ourselves that uh, we've been told to hide and change. Okay. Will you go to the... Are the BAFTAs happening? Is it, a, is it the ceremony's Person, happening? Yeah, it is happening. Will you go? I will go, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And won't believe every moment of it. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, it is, it's, a, it's a weird thing, because I, I mean, I'm, I'm not very good with... Uh, red carpet events and all that sort of stuff. But the BAFTAs is fantastically glitzy. Oh, yeah. yeah it's, 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 take the chocolates. Okay. They're really, really good chocolates. They come in the, these little BAFTA moulds and they're great and they keep, like, forever. Oh, really? So, like, take them, just take loads and loads I'll of them. That. I'll bring a bag just for that. But congratulations on the nomination. The film is really powerful. And as I said, Thank everybody, you. you can see it uh, on The Guardian, you can see it uh, on, uh, on YouTube, and it's 23, 24 minutes long. It's really, really worth seeing. Okay. Um, I wish you every success in whatever it is that you're doing next that you won't tell me about. <laughs> um, so congratulations and thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you. That's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed the first half of the most recent MK3D show. If you like the sound of the show and you'd like to come along in person, then go to the BFI website for tickets. But be warned, they do sell out pretty quickly. Next week, in the second half of that show, we'll hear from Clio Barnard and the makers of The Real Charlie Chaplin. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, remember to subscribe, tell your friends. Till next week, stay safe and keep watching the skies. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.